Hello, and you are listening to EcoJustice Radio from the 90.7 KPFK Studios in Los Angeles, California. Our show is brought to you by SoCal 350 Climate Action, presenting environmental and climate stories from a social justice frame, featuring voices not necessarily heard on traditional mainstream or even public media outlets. I am your host, Jessica Aldridge, and today we will be talking with Mar Martinez, organizing coordinator at the Garment Workers Center. With two garment workers as parents, Mar Martinez witnessed firsthand the harm that the garment industry creates due to low wages and unsafe working conditions. As organizing coordinator and wage theft clinic coordinator, Mar has helped recover over 900000 in stolen wages for garment workers and fight for greater brand accountability in the garment industry in Los Angeles. On today's show, we are discussing sweatshops, LA's dirty secret, and the fight for garment workers. When we fight for environmental standards and rights, we must always take into consideration the health, safety, security, and equity of people, our brothers and sisters. It is impossible to disconnect social justice from environmental justice. As we have discussed in previous shows, fast fashion sows a web of questionable environmental and human rights issues. The world consumes about 80 billion new pieces of clothing every year, and Americans generate 82 pounds of textiles waste while we are continuously bombarded by cheaply sold clothes and marketing campaigns to buy more. In that same vein, Los Angeles is the nation's garment production capital and the city's second largest manufacturing sector, yet workers face injustice, usually associated with the developing world, right here in one of the largest cities in the United States. Unbeknownst to most, sweatshops are reality in Los Angeles, California, and are directly tied to some of the most notable and loved brands. However, accountability and human rights are not always being addressed by those brands and the manufacturers they use. So where lies our responsibility as consumers, as concerned citizens, as environmentalists? How are sweatshops and labor practices intrinsically tied to environmental issues? Remember, no disconnect between social and environmental justice. Our speaker today is from the Garment Workers Center, a worker rights organization leading an anti-sweatshop movement to secure social and economic justice for tens of thousands of Los Angeles garment workers. It is my pleasure to welcome our speaker, Mar Martinez, organizing coordinator for the Garment Workers Center. Welcome to the show, Mar. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. I'm happy you're here. This is going to be a great show. So before we dive all into this, describe what the Garment Workers Center does and who they represent. Absolutely. Uh, We are here representing around 45,000 garment workers in Los Angeles that are cutting and sewing and producing clothing that all of you might recognize for stores such as Fashion Nova, Nordstrom, Forever 21, Charlotte Russe. um, And right now we have a campaign against Ross Stores and so on and so on. But uh, we're an organization that's here advocating for garment workers. We're the only organization in the nation that's still advocating for garment workers exclusively. Um, And we are fighting for brand accountability. We're trying to create more accountability for these retailers that kind of feel like they can get away with abusing workers and using sweatshops without anybody knowing about it. And we're here to expose the truth. And what personally attracted you to this work? Well, uh, I am originally from South Central Los Angeles. Well, I'm still there. I still live in South Central Los Angeles. Both my parents are garment workers. Um, I began organizing as a youth 
in high school around educational justice issues around racism and systemic racism and in schools in South Central LA. But when I went to college, I got involved with a group called United Students Against Sweatshops. And with them, I got to travel uh, to other countries, to Central America and to Bangladesh after the Rana Plaza factory collapse, to talk to workers, to be in solidarity with workers that were producing clothing for our universities. Um, And while I was on these trips of solidarity trips uh, with United Students Against Sweatshops, I was calling my mom back home, uh, telling her what the injustices that I was seeing, the the sweatshops that I was witnessing, the tragedies I was witnessing. And then my mom would go ahead and be like, "Mm mm-hmm, yep, that's the same way it is here. You know, Mm. she would be saying that, um, you know, the peace rate, wage theft, bad conditions in the factories were all also normal in the L.A. factories that she worked on. And it clicked for me then that I'd been ignoring the injustices that my parents had been going through while I was fighting for justice in the school system and against racism in my community in South L.A. I was ignoring the this really big issue that had caused so much poverty and strife for my family. So I decided to come back to L.A. and seek out uh, Garment Worker Center, who was, uh, you know, the only organization that was working with garment workers in L.A. and and decided that that's what I wanted to do, that, that I wanted to advocate for people like my mom and my dad who had worked in these factories in L.A. their whole lives. Wow. And, yeah, you just mentioned the... Bangladesh Garment Factory. And on one of our previous radio shows, we uh, spoke about textiles manufacturing and and the environmental effects such as waste and pollution. We talked about Bangladesh. That that factory, when it collapsed, it killed over 1,000 people. It injured at least 2,500. And it was the, the fourth largest industrial disaster in history. How is the everyday reality of a person working in a garment factory with sweatshop conditions directly related to environmental issues? Absolutely. The I mean, I think the people that are always going to be most directly impacted by the environmental issues in the in the garment industry are going to be the workers that have to touch the garments before they're washed, you know, with whatever chemicals and dyes and dust that comes off of the garments and the environmental impact that that has on their lives. And, and obviously also the communities that a lot of folks come from where they're producing garments, uh, they, there might be um, runoff going into rivers that's affecting their, their lives. And, and things like that. But I think it impacts all of us in the sense that, you know, a lot of the cheap clothing that's made ends up in landfills, ends up, you know, being thrown away, not only because it's like made at such a cheap price, but also the quality of the material is made at a cheap price so that they're cutting corners so that we're buying a shirt or a dress from Forever 21 that is going to end up in the trash within a couple of weeks after a couple of washes. And that's, uh, I think, one of the main ways that the garment industry is impacting the environment, but also through, you know, the, the cotton and the polyester and all of that that's created, you know, having an impact on the way that communities, uh, whole communities have to deal with environmental impact of the dyes and the production of these clothing that is often made in, in toxic ways. And then, uh, you know, ultimately, because workers are living in in, in such poverty or, or don't get the wages that they deserve, they don't have access to the type of health care, they don't have access to the type of environmental justice that I think a lot of them deserve having to, to live All in these. Them. Yeah. All of them, right. Yeah, and it's all because of such low wages that people receive that they, you know, don't have access to any any type of good health care. Yeah, and it, you you 
sort of started to paint that picture of what a sweatshop is. What What is a sweatshop? Paint that picture for our listeners. Def- define what a sweatshop looks like. Yeah, I think when when I envision a, a sweatshop, and, you know, sweatshop is a word that specifically is talking about garment production and the history of this garment production. But I'm, you know, when I see it, I picture a room that's filled with machines and clothing and garments everywhere piled up high where it's hot there's no ventilation i picture somewhere where people are working so fast that they're there's sweat running down their backs uh, where people look fatigued where um, it's suffocating where the entrances are closed off or sometimes even boarded up with you know makeshift cardboard or you know something like that where employers are trying to hide the conditions that are going on so they're trying to make sure that the doors are locked and people aren't coming in and out, where there isn't uh, potable water for people to drink or where there's roaches or rat infestations in the factory. And then ultimately, ultimately, where workers' rights are not being respected and people are not being paid a fair wage. Yes. And in Los Angeles, we're the nation's garment production capital and the largest manufacturing sector in in the city with over 45,000 workforce. What is that reality, that sweatshop reality in Los Angeles? Because I don't think a lot of people, when you go, there's sweatshops Mm -hmm. in L.A. They think in China. They're thinking overseas. They're not thinking right here at home. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of people don't realize that a lot of the garment production in Los Angeles is being done in factories that are not paying the minimum wage. From the most recent Department of Labor study addressing this issue in 2016, about 85% of the garment factories in Los Angeles are in violation of the minimum wage. That's pretty much everybody. That's wall-to-wall wage theft, except for a few companies that, you know, we can say for sure are paying above the minimum wage, which, you know, sometimes I feel like I count them on my fingers. But the vast majority of the factories in Los Angeles are underpaying workers. And, you know, absolutely when people aren't even being insured the minimum wage, I can assure you that health and safety conditions are also in a ter- are terrible in those places because an employer that's not, you know, wasting money paying people the minimum wage and abiding by labor laws is is definitely not paying for adequate uh, ventilation, yeah. is definitely not paying for good health care for the workers, is not ensuring that the water filters, you know, don't have roach infestations or making sure there's enough toilet paper in the bathrooms. These are pretty normal things that I hear from workers almost daily. Wow. But there does exist this this law, Assembly Bill 633, the Garment Worker Protection Act, is that regulation not working? Are they seeking to reform it? Yeah, something that I always say is that movements happen in waves, that for every wave forward, there's an undertow or, or a step backwards, right? One of the first campaigns that Garment Workers Center did around 20 years ago when we opened our doors was to fight for this law, AB 633, which would create regulations in the garment industry. What it did is that it tried to create accountability up the chain, right? Holding the people that are sending work to the factories that are profiting the most, you know, retailers, manufacturers, trying to get them to to be responsible for the wages of workers at the factory level to make sure that, you know, those factory owners are being paid enough so that the minimum wage is possible and good health and safety conditions are possible. But a lot of these companies have figured out ways to, you know, 
push back against the law, create loopholes for themselves. So right now, a lot of the big retailers are exempt from this law and aren't being held accountable at all. And a lot of manufacturers, even contractors, have realized that when we file cases against them, that they can shut down their doors and nobody's going to go look for them once they've shut down. And so then we have situations where we win cases where employers don't even show up to their meetings, to their hearings, and we win our cases, but there's absolutely no one to collect from. So we actually know that, you know, because of all of this that has been going on, um, there's about 11 million in owed wages to workers that I would say that the garment industry owes garment workers. If you are just tuning in, you are listening to Ecojustice Radio on 90.7 KPFK. The Fair Labor Standards Act sets up something that's called a peace rate. What is a peace rate and how is it being used to undermine minimum wage? So the peace rate is something interesting. So if you can imagine um, the peace rate is where people are being paid for the the pieces that they're producing instead of the hours that they're working. What the law says is that they're supposed to be guaranteed the minimum wage anyway. So even if you don't produce enough to meet the minimum wage, they're supposed to guarantee it for you. But what a lot of garment employers do is that they abuse the piece rate and uh, create a sub-minimum wage for garment workers. That's the reason why workers are only receiving around $5 an hour on average when they're working in these garment shops through the piece rate. To make it easier to understand, like imagine if you worked at a toy factory and you were paid for the amount of toys that you created instead of by the hours that you spent there. So, you know, and these piece rates are really low. They're like four or five cents, 10 cents. The highest I've heard is 25 cents in the five years that I've been organizing with garment workers. That's pretty much what I've heard. Uh, three and a half cents. Somebody could have had one employer could have the piece rate down in half of a penny. But, you know, even as the minimum wage increases, because the peace rate isn't increasing, garment workers really haven't seen the benefits of these fights for 15, of these fights for a higher minimum wage for for decades now. Because those peace rates are not increasing, their wages continue to be the same. And not only that, I mean, we're at the Garment Workers Center really believe that the peace rate can't be regulated and has to be eliminated, not just because of the low wages that it causes, but also because of the health and safety concerns. Workers are being, you know, forced to work through their breaks or are incentivized to work through their breaks in order to produce more pieces. Or they're incentivized to work at unsafe speeds. There's even discrimination between those that are younger that can work faster and those that have been maybe working for 30 years in the garment industry that might be a little bit slower. You know, so there's discrimination there. So it's not just a wage issue, but it's also like a health and safety issue. So we believe that, you know, you know, there can be production goals, but uh, workers need to be insured the minimum wage. There can't be any loopholes. There can't be any sub minimum wages for any workers. And then people are encouraged to take the clothing home then, too. Right. Because it's like, well, if I if I go home and I work all through the night and I'll get paid for this piece. Yes. I mean, and this is where I can share a little bit about growing up uh, in the, you know, around the garment industry with my parents. Like oftentimes, you know, employers will make workers take work home. And, you know, I would help my mom unsew clothing or stick tags on clothing or trim clothing or fold clothing because, you know, she was being paid by the piece. And if I could help produce some pieces with her, then that would mean uh, more wages for our family. So oftentimes that's what happens is that the the garment industry is just having this big impact, not just on the worker, but on the entire family who often has to chip in to try to produce more pieces. Yeah. 
And the Garment Workers Center is currently working on a campaign that's targeting Ross Dress for Less. What's happening there and what, what is being asked of Ross? Yeah, so the Department of Labor did this study and they found, you know, the same wage stuff that I'm talking about in 13 factories that produced Ross clothing. All 13 of those factories shut down. We found four workers that were courageous enough to file formal claims against Ross stores and they won their judgment of over 800,000 owed in wages uh, that were stolen from them because they worked those hours and they proved that they worked those hours, but they are unable to collect that money uh, because the factory owners shut down, the manufacturers shut down, and the loophole in the law allows Ross to kind of get away with it uh, and say we had no control over our contractors. But the Department of Labor study also showed that Ross was underfunding their orders so that it was impossible for these garment workers to receive the minimum wage based on what Ross was providing for these orders. So this is how we know that there's a direct link between what the retailers are paying for the garments and what the workers receive in wages, but they refuse to take accountability for it and the law refuses to hold them accountable. So we've decided to take the fight to the streets, to take the fight to them directly and to show them, take the workers face to face. We just came back from an action. Um, the annual shareholders meeting, right? Yeah. We and just, you were personally there. Yeah. I went in. We'd been campaigning for three years, just simply asking for a meeting so that we can try to resolve this issue so that they can help um, restore these wages for these workers that were stolen from them. Uh, And so I went into the shareholder meeting and just to make a statement about what's been going on and to make the question, why won't you meet with these four workers and resolve this matter? And, you know, as I went into the meeting, I had uh, like three security guards escorting me the whole time. They told me I could only speak for two minutes. But the minute that I started talking about sweatshops, the minute that that the second that that came out of my mouth, one of the Ross representatives took the mic away from me. So then I had to use my own natural voice uh, mm-hmm. to to um, get my message across and continue making my statement. And uh, if, you know, very quickly, I had all these security guards surrounding me, telling me that that if I wanted to get arrested, <laughs> if I kept making a threat. Yeah, if I kept making my statement, I would be arrested. And they escorted me out. Uh, They kicked me out of the meeting and told me I had to take the shortest route out of Rostor's headquarters. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And then I joined the the protesters that were outside. We took about 15 of our members and allies out. And we were also joined by United Students Against Sweatshop students from UC Santa Cruz that had joined our action and a couple unions that also showed up in support. We thank all of them for joining us. But, you know, for we were just a small group of protesters. Obviously, we have this huge coalition behind us, but we, we took a small group to this action. We were outnumbered by the number of security guards and Dublin police officers that had showed up who were actually making threats. So this company cares a lot more about keeping us off their lawns than they do about restoring workers' stolen wages, you know, and that they profited off of. Yeah. And what is this concept of cutting and running and how does that ensure that wages stay low? Yeah, this is exactly what we're talking about here is that, you know, workers speak up 
And instead of resolving the issue, these companies will say, oh, you know, we don't want to do business with uh, this factory that violated workers' rights. So they they take their production out of that factory instead of resolving it. And they just put it again in a different factory that's still exploiting workers. So cutting and running is just a tactic of pretty much running away from the problem, shutting down factories, throwing their hands up and saying, oh, there's nothing we can do about it. And especially for workers, it means that by the time that they win a case, they can't they have no one that can pay their wages that can, um, you know, resolve the the, retribution. Yeah, give them the retribution that they're owed that, you know, courts have said that they're owed it, that the losses that is owed to them. When people are buying clothes, I, I don't think most people understand what the true cost of the garment is that they're buying. And we've covered some of those uh, within this conversation. How, how do you explain that true cost to somebody? Yeah. Um, you know, this is, a, this is a tricky question because I think that a, lo- a lot of times the consumers themselves are also being exploited by these corporations. Yes, th- these garments do cost a lot to make. These garments are... You know, the the production of the garments, transportation, selling, all of that, there's cost that goes into it. There's also the environmental impact that it has. But I think it's it's incredibly unfair when I see, you know, these corporations advertising to the young people. A lot of us uh, have things like student debt. We're dealing with a rent crisis. We're dealing with all these issues. And then we're expected to buy these clothing from these companies that are multi-billion dollar company like Ross Storch just made $14 billion in revenue last year, you know, and at the same time, like they're paying like Six dollars for a piece of garment to be made. Uh, Two dollars is what the contractor receives uh, to actually sew the clothing. Uh, And then they go and they sell it to all of us uh, at really high prices and profit all of that. So, yeah, the the true cost uh, of the of the garment is something that that is, you know, kept away from us so that we go ahead and pay for that brand, for that label. and, And then don't think about how the real impact of that clothing on, on the workers' lives, on the environment, and all those things. And that the the increase, if we increased wage, it doesn't negatively have to impact the consumer or impact the price of the clothes. It can come from the deep pockets of... Yeah, I think that that's what bothers these companies that we're asking them to dig into their their own profits, uh, to not pit consumers against workers by uh, saying that they're going to have to pass down the the increased cost of production of you know paying workers correctly onto the consumer, uh, even though I think it would only cost them like a dollar more to double the wages of garment workers per garment. You know, so to me, it just absolutely seems uh, outrageous for them to say we can't ensure workers' rights or not the consumers are going to be affected or something like that. It just that's a ridiculous argument, a PR tactic that's meant pinning the consumer against the the garment worker, too. Right. Yeah. And and what we need right now is uh, solidarity between consumers and and workers so that we're working together to not only make sure that the the workers' rights are ensured, but that, you know, clothing is made in in a way that is good for all of us, you know, for the consumer and the worker. And how do we know if a business is taking responsibility? And is there information out there that the general public can look to, to know, like, if I buy from this company, they've got fair wages and they're fair trade or whatever it might be? Yeah, there's absolutely lots of organizations that are doing that work. Uh, Fashion Revolution is one that we've been uh, working with right now. But 
Garment Worker Center actually wants to become or, in you know, has a goal of creating like a monitoring system for garment shops here in Los Angeles, you know, it can take lots of different forms. That's why we're always uh, asking people to support us any way that they can, because we have lots of plans, lots of big dreams. It's really hard to monitor this industry. And how do we? We've got a couple minutes here left, and I want to make sure that we're able to say how do we? How do we support the garment workers? And then uh, tell our listeners where they can find more information and the upcoming actions. Absolutely. So you can always find us on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, using Garment Workers Center to look us up. Right now we have a petition around the Ross campaign. You can use the you know website, the bit.ly uh, Ross Contracts for Less uh, to, to access that. We'll also go to our social media and sign on to our petition to shareholders. And always our, our website is garmentworkercenter.org, and you can go there. We would love for folks also to, to know that they can always donate to our organization after um, signing on because, like I said, we, you know, we have lots of plans. We have lots of big ideas, but we're also a really small organization, and this is an issue that a lot of uh, foundations ignore. You know, they, they'll say like, oh, you know, this is an old issue or something like that, even though we know that it's something current that's affecting, you know, 45,000 families in Los Angeles. Thank you to Mar Martinez, organizing coordinator for Garment Workers Center, for being our guest today. This has been a wonderful conversation. I know that there's a lot of people out there that do not know that sweatshops are here in Los Angeles. So I thank you for being in the studio today. No, thank you so much for this opportunity. I hope, um, you know, I hope everybody takes a good look at the labels on their clothing and asks the question, where was my clothes made and was it made in good conditions? Because ultimately that's what's going to create better conditions for workers when there's consciousness around consumers and the conditions in which our clothing are made. And thank you to our listeners for joining us. All the resources mentioned today will be available at (laughs) SoCal350.org. You've been listening to Ecojustice Radio brought to you by SoCal 350 and 90.7 KPFK. The show can be found on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and at SoCal350.org. Created by Mark and J.P. Morris, executive producer Jack Eit, engineer Blake Lampkin, interview hosted by Jessica Aldridge from Adventures and Waste, and original music by Javier Cadre. And until next time, remember, the power is yours. <laughs>